Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. I am Steve Kilby from The Church, and you're listening to the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you feeling today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? I am feeling out of this world today, Dave. Out of this world? Why are you out of this world today? I am feeling under the Milky Way, maybe. Under the Milky Way. Okay. All right. So you're, uh, you're high as a kite. Is that what's happening here? <laughs> Very good. <laughs> that is what's happening here. Okay, yes. very good. So your butt, you just have no idea. You're not even going to remember what happened during this episode. Let me tell you what's going to happen. This is Steve Kilby of The Church. So The Church have a new album out. It's called Hypnogog. This is album number 26, which is just bananas. Also, Steve Kilby has 14 solo albums, and he has a number of other projects. This guy is never at a loss for music inspirations. That said, we're going to talk a lot about this new album, Hypnogog, and we're going to talk about the church. And you can see outtakes of this interview with Steve Kilby on the What Difference Does It Make podcast YouTube channel and on social media at WDDIM podcast. That sounds great. Okay, let's get right into it then. This is Steve Kilby of the church on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hi, Steve Kilby. Hello, how are you? Good. Doing yep. great. You're in Australia now. I'm in Coogee Beach, New South Wales, and it's a lovely, it's the last day of summer, and I just had a swim in the ocean. Oh, nice. That is a great way to start the day. It uh, is. It seriously is. Well, you're in for a shock when you come to L.A. We've, we're actually having like a winter with, uh, with snow, and it's bonkers over here right now. I know. It's really hard. I got to pack... It's like summer here, and I've got a plat pack knowing I'm coming to winter, and it's sort of like a hard thing to get my head around to put my furry coats and my warm undies <laughs> in my suitcase when I want to have board shorts and flip-flops. Sorry to drag you away, but happy to see you here. Okay, no worries. <laughs> uh, okay, so you're, you're coming to L.A., and you're doing this massive tour to support this album, which you call the most prog rock thing the church has ever done. Yeah. Well, can I say, as soon as I say that, a thousand voices pop up going, this isn't prog rock, what's prog rock? And then all the people who discuss prog rock, they can't agree amongst themselves what is prog rock. So I'm using that term in its broadest sense, not in its whatever that might mean. I've taken out the things I didn't like about prog rock. And I used to love my prog rock records, except I never liked the gratuitous time changes. Mm. I didn't like it <laughs> when there was this great song going along and then suddenly something would go. I never liked that. I never dug that. I used to think even before I knew what the word gratuitous meant, the teenage <laughs> me would listen to it and think that's fucking gratuitous. <laughs> so I've taken that bit out. There's no gratuitous time changes. 
it's prog rock in the sense of its intentions, its ambitions. It's more like The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway than it is like Anarchy in the UK, let's say that, on a huge scale. It purports to tell a story. It sort of has a moral, I guess. The story and the morals are up to you. And there's sort of some long songs and some sort of weird bits where I guess I'm asking the listener to have a bit of a leap of faith. But it's not hardcore prog rock like, I don't know, somebody could say, put it on a prog record and it would make my record sound like the Dead Boys. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> I hear you. Sunken job, I feel you long Blessed sister double happiness Sun comes along, Rupert sings a swan song She's rallying my life from When the spell is gone There's always something more proggy and there's always something more punky or something more psychedelic or more alt country or more indie or more classic. No matter where you are on the scale, when we discuss these classifications, if it was a university degree, <laughs> like in, in, in university, you can say in an excavation, okay, we've now reached the Egyptian register. And everybody, all the archaeologists all around the world will go, yes, we agree, that is what we all commonly agree is the Egyptian register, and so on and so on. But in rock and roll, there are no, nobody really has, until it, if it ever does, and hopefully it doesn't, until it sort of actually solidifies as a university course. When one says prog rock or punk rock or classic rock or whatever we these words we use, they're all just approximate and relative you know what i mean it almost sounds like you're you're defending it because everyone now on social media whereas before people were reading the articles in, in music magazines you know in the music press and responding to that now anybody on social media can hear you say uh, it's a it's a prog rock record and then they can debate every you know every note of it there you go there you go and that's a whole other kind of worms altogether as well once upon a time you released an album and very, very slowly the reviews would come in and might take, oh, six months to a year before you could really assess what had happened. These days, the reviews are instant, and not only that, but everybody, uh, and then, you know, you. So, so I would yell out to one of my friends, oh, I got a good review, and, and then they say, what in? And I go, blah, blah, blah. And they'd say, what's that? And then you might go, oh, well, actually, it's just a bloke who does a podcast with eight <laughs> listeners, you know what I mean? Or it could be something like Pitchfork or yeah. some important, but it's no, there's no longer this 
defining thing mm -hmm. where it's it used to be new musical express that's where you want once upon a time you mm -hmm. wanted a good review in new music express that was the last word if they you know melody maker or sounds i'm talking in england now yeah. and in america it wasn't Rolling Stone, not for me anyway. They never fucking know what they're talking about except for David Frick. <laughs> there was magazines like Circus and Cream and Rock Scene. I'm talking a long time ago now in the 70s and mm. 80s. That was where you wanted the good reviews. These days, mm. you don't know. I mean, anybody can start a website and give you a good or a bad review and then you can go forth and quote that forever going, look at this 10-star review I got. But it could be, as I say, <laughs> by... Your granny, who's got a, who's you know designed a website. <laughs> what did the fifteen-year-old Steve Kilby feel if he heard that uh, he was creating a prog rock album? Well, the sixteen-year-old me would have. Well, they didn't have that word then. The the twenty-year-old me might go great, <laughs> but then maybe the twenty-three-year-old, after new wave and punk had happened, I might have unfortunately been one of those throwing my prog records on the bonfire <laughs> and secretly going back to them when nobody's around going, oh boy, I hope Sid Vicious isn't watching me because I'm going to listen to my Yes album. It's so hard to go back there in 1975, 1976. Rock was bloated and prog rock had very much run its course and punk rock came along and seemed to be a breath of fresh air. But as I've said in other interviews on this round of interviews, how many people are going home and listening to fucking punk rock records at night? How many people put on punk rock <laughs> records to get them through the pandemic? Not many, but I bet a lot of them were fucking listening to Genesis, for example, and Pink Floyd and whoever else. Yeah. I'm ashamed to say I, I am totally re-embracing prog rock as a very valid thing. And I'm ashamed that I ever, even in my own heart, defected for a year or two to this other stupid thing. <laughs> Don't worry. We've, well, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you're acknowledging it now. And, and... For you and God, <laughs> I am acknowledging my mistakes, okay? <laughs> I want to ask, what is the book you were reading in the promo photo that I've seen everywhere? Ah, uh, nobody's fucking asked me that. I should be able to pull something really pithy out of the air for that. Oh. Um, and say it was um, in remembrance of things passed by Marcel Proust or um, <laughs> Pilgrim's Progress, maybe, or something. It was just a prop that was lying around, and I saw it sitting there, and I said to the guy, hey, how would it look if I'm reading a book? Because I don't know what to do in photos anymore. Once upon a time, I was so beautiful and angular and young and perfect <laughs> with great haircut. I didn't have to do anything. I just have to roll up and still go, ugh. Nowadays, nowadays I'm at a loss, so I'm going, give me a prop so I, I don't have to focus on how ugly and old I am. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So I can pretend to be reading a book like I'm not trying to be handsome. I'm trying to be a literary old professor. <laughs> Let me ask you about two other names. Watching the video, you have credits on there written by Eros Zeta. And I was, uh, I did a, a Google search. I couldn't find Eros Zeta. The novel, Sun Kim Jung? Yeah. Okay. Please tell yeah. me who these people are. Okay. The album is based on the story, on the love story between Eros Zeta and his band, The Perfume Guitars, and Sun Kim Jong, 
who's the Korean, she's a Korean scientist, and she has in 2054, which is 100 years after I was born, Sun Kim Jong in Korea in a failing, fading world, in a world that is running out of spare parts and the technology is broken down. She has cobbled together a machine called the Hypnagogue, which is part machine, part occult, part drug, and part something else. And she claims to be able to help failing creatives to pull their ideas straight out of their head. Our hero, our protagonist, Eros Zeta, who lives in Antarctica, which is one of the most inhabitable land masses in 2054, he has run out of ideas. And against his manager, this is the second track, is his manager warning him on a track called Sailor V. He says, don't go there and use that machine. It'll fuck you up. But he ignores his manager. He flies to Korea. It used to be North Korea in the story. But an American friend of mine said, Steve, don't have North Korea. It's going to drive people crazy. Just have Korea. So, okay. So he flies to Korea, which maybe by 2054 is unified then. He flies to Korea to use the hypnagogue to drag the music straight out of his head because he can't write it anymore. And he meets Sun Kim Jong, who's the inventor, and they fall in love. And there are disastrous consequences. And the whole thing goes wrong. So that's who those two people are. That other name is the name the guy who made the video just made up, as I guess a joke at my expense, seeing he was putting up all these other phony names. He thought he'd throw up a phony name of his own. The <laughs> Woo Blue Goo one, whatever that one was on the, at the end of the video. Nice. All right, so uh, I, I don't think you have a, a Pink Floyd type tour budget. How do you create? No. Right. So how do you recreate a, a concept album in a live setting? What, or what? It, what is the church's plan to uh, to get the message out about what this album is on, on a tour? Well, we're not going to play the whole album for a start, so people don't have to worry about that. We are <laughs> taking selected songs. We are doing. On our tour of America, we are doing five or six songs off the Hypnagogue, and then we are doing a, what is it, the latest phrase, a career retrospective. Like, we're trying to guarantee all the punters uh, we're going <laughs> to play everything you want to hear and some new ones. So it's like stuff from all periods of our career, the early stuff, the mid stuff, the late stuff, and our new album. We can't create it with flying pigs and airplanes crashing. <laughs> you just have to go to the hypnagogue in your mind, I suppose. The way we will create it is by playing the songs the best way we know how and everybody being on the same page and five people bending their minds towards this common purpose, which is to 
show people how great our new album is. It's shoestring budget presents, you know. <laughs> like, man, look how I would like to be playing the Greek theatre with a cast of thousands and dancing horses and people appearing and thunder and lightning and water and it's not going to be like that you know it's going to be um it's going to be just a light show in a band i don't even think we're going to have i think projections are great but there's two problems it's very prohibitive to have the projector expensive and secondly so you can hire this you great projector and then you find out you can't use it at 60% of the venues because they're just not set up for it. So there will be no great production as such, but hopefully the intensity of the music, the expertise of the players and our combined mojo will deliver the message. Talking with Steve Kilby of The Church. I think it's time to take a sabbatical, though. Let's do that right now. back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with our very special guest, Steve Kilby of The Church. I went to uh, Cruel World last year and saw you guys. Yes. Uh, that was wonderful. Yes. Do you like playing those, those festivals, trying to win someone over? Not, no. Yeah. no look, <laughs> can I say that I don't? Sure. Can I say I don't, I don't really want to go on in the afternoon and play to someone who's rolled up to see Blondie or something? I would rather play to thousand people who are there to see me than a hundred thousand people where I'm just a guy that goes on in the afternoon between one band and another. And most people don't know who I am and I don't get any light show at all because it's sort of five o'clock on a hot afternoon and I just have to wander on stage. I don't really like doing that. Personally, it's good for business and it's good to get the exposure and stuff. The church have never been a band that could win people over. Look, I never saw Prince, but I imagine Prince, if you put Prince on in any situation, he would win 90% of the audience over, right? You would imagine he that's how he was so brilliant and musical and incredible and astounding. So they walk out and go, wow. The church have never been like that. The church is sort of different. You need to understand what the church is. You need to accept a certain manifesto when you see the church to enjoy it. If you're coming to see, you know, a great front man strut his stuff and, or if you're coming to hear some, you know, some great rock and roll, you're not going to hear that. That's not what we're about. We're doing a very specific thing. It's like going and seeing an art movie or going and <laughs> seeing a piece of theatre. It's like going and seeing a, a play by August Strindberg or something. Automatically... So about 70% of the population are excluded from what we do. It, it's sort of literary and it has, you have to understand the kind of bands that we were influenced by and love, you know, and like we're a very specific experience and we always have been. And I can't really see chucking us on in a festival in the afternoon. Many people are going to wander away from that and go, wow, weren't the church amazing? Because it's sort of not, we're, we're sort of operating under the wrong sort of conditions. I think you've got to want to like the church. I've thought about this a lot. Yeah. I've been doing this a long time, the church a long time. We're not a band that 
are going to win skeptics over that like someone who's like, I don't write this kind of thing. Isn't going to walk in and love it. You've sort of got to want to like it and embrace it. And if you do, then I think we're pretty good. If you're looking for a sort of a guns and roses experience, you might as well forget it because it's, it's not that, you know, it's not about that. It's about some idea. And the idea that it's about that is so hard to define is not, and has never been a very popular idea. It's a sort of a world of sort of a sort of a literary intellectual, not incredibly intellectual like physics or something, but it's at the end, this end of a scale that asks you to believe in a sort of spiritual and supernatural things. And it's not a populist idea. It's not a McDonald's idea. It's a high-end mm. vegan restaurant idea mm. if it was music. You know mm. what I mean? It's not yeah. like... It's not music for the masses. It never was. So, you know, that's why when Under the Milky Way was sort of a hit, it was such a miracle because <laughs> it was accidentally a hit. And for a while, the masses embraced us. But when a lot of the masses came to see us, I guess they found out it wasn't really their cup of tea. Sometimes when this place gets kind of empty Sound of their breath fades with the light I think about the loveless fascination Under the Milky Way tonight Lower the curtain down Curtain down on right. I got no time for private consultation under the Milky Way tonight. Wish I knew what you were looking for. Might have known what you. It's sad for me to think there are millions of people in America who would really love the church if only they knew we existed. And I wish I wish I had some way of reaching them, but I guess I don't. That they will they they will obliviously go on not knowing that we are here. That's sad because we could reach more people than we do. I think the way to approach us is through, is through our records, not through our live. It's more like you would enjoy the records and then you would come and see us live to perform those songs that you've digested and enjoyed. I don't think it's so much that we're a conquering experience if you don't already like the records. I think it's the other way around. The records sort of come first and, and then the live experience comes after that. So aside from Under the Milky Way, if you were going to now try and draw in new fans, what do you think the most the song that's most apt to do that would be? I would play him the Hypnagogue. Okay. This is where we're at. This is what we're doing. What we have done for the first time ever, or for the first time in a long time, it's really a band of superstars. We have Ian Hogue, who was in the biggest band in Australia called Powderfinger, mm-hmm. who were a huge band in Australia. Mm-hmm. He's on guitar. We have Ashley Naylor joining us on guitar. If you're forming a band in Australia and you want the best lead guitarist, he would be like one of the three guys you would choose. We've got Jeffrey Kane from Alabama, 
who was in a band called Remy Zero, and he was the master mastermind behind that band. He's yeah. joined the band and brought all of his wizardry and mojo into the project. And then we've got me and Tim, who've always been in the well, have Tim's been in it for thirty years, and yeah. me, and we've got these five people together, and we are all bending our minds towards the same purpose to make the like. This sounds like it should always be like this, but strangely enough, it isn't. We're all trying to make the best music we can possibly make with collaboration, not resisting each other, not fighting with each other, not sort of climbing on top of each other and going, me, me, me. Just like one of those films where they do a bank job. You know, everybody's good at one thing and then they there's a mastermind behind it. Well, that's me. And then I've got these other four experts, but we're all working together to get the prize at the end of the whole thing, which is like to make this wonderful album. And I think we, we have made a wonderful album. Obviously I'm going to say, I'd rather hear this than fucking under the Milky way. But <laughs> if someone said to me, give me one song, I'd say, listen to the title track of the hypnagogue. Have a listen to that. Obviously, I mean, you said you're playing six songs from this album. You got to have a lot of confidence for people that are, are going to the show and like, we're, this is what I love this album. You're going to love this album. We're going to play the, this music for you and you're going to love yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Look, I think one has a rather solemn obligation to an audience, unless you say we are playing this album and this album and we have the church have already done that many times. We say, if you buy a ticket, this show, you're going to hear this and this. When the show isn't specific, then I think you have an obligation to the audience. You, you're going to hear everything you want to hear, and you're going to hear some new songs off our new album. I think that's yeah. that's really what it should be about. And um, if you're not so jazzed on the new album, to tell you the truth, and you can go back and check this, I wasn't that jazzed on our last album. When we toured the last album, we only played a couple of songs off it because I thought, there were only really a couple of good songs on that album. I didn't want to thrust any more than that down people's throats. But with this album, yeah, six songs. At least we could play more than that. But just because of the time, you know, we're going to do a two and a half hour set. It's pretty long. It's interesting to see we've been going 42 years. It's interesting to see that you can put 42 years of music together 
and find a continuity in there. There is a continuity of thought, a continuity of music, and a continuity of mood and atmosphere. When I began the church so long ago, in, in another century, in another time, in another almost incarnation, I still wanted to do what I'm doing now, is make this kind of music, whatever it is. It's so hard to say what it is in one word, you know, but whatever it is, this quasi-spiritual, some people say surrealist, some people say psychedelic, you know, whatever it is, that's what our show will be a cross-section of. And I'm pleased to say there's no disconnects. You know, it's, it's not like suddenly in our career somewhere we did something completely different. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like it's always kind of been the same sort of thing. Yeah. True to yourselves. When you listen, you mentioned the drug years. When you go back and listen to your whole catalog, do you notice a difference between the music that you made then and music that you're making now? Um, well, yeah, I notice when, when I listen to records I made on drugs, I can hear where I was at. I can hear in the honeymoon period, in my opiate honeymoon period, we made an album called Priest Equals Aura. And this is almost sacrilegious to say this. This could almost get you cancelled. In the first six months of opium addiction, I produced and I had a desire to produce some wonderful music. Each drug I took all my life when I first smoked weed, wow, I want to get this feeling in the music. When I took acid, wow, I want to get this feeling in the music. When I take ayahuasca, wow, how do you get this in the music? Same with opium. It's like, this is a feeling here. Can I capture it in music? This slow, warm, deep, sensuous feeling. So for the first opiate addicted album, it was warm and sensuous and beautiful. And that was Priest Equals Aura. As the years went on and I struggled against my addiction, I can hear how I've kind of making the music, writing the lyrics, despite the junk instead of because of it or for it. And I hear there's a legendary album we made called Bastard Universe, which is an 80 minute jam. And halfway through the jam, I stop playing bass altogether and not off and they keep going. And then I wake up five minutes before the end and rejoin triumphantly like I was never away. And well, I wake up and start playing again. And that's sort of where it, it ended up. It ended up that I was, that I was struggling against it to keep going because it didn't really want me to be creative, but I was creative despite that. So then how long after that? Oh, I cleaned up in 2000. So it's like 23 years of cleanliness. Um, <laughs> and But not sobriety by any means. So, you know, it's legal in America now, so I can say this. I've smoked dope every record, every fucking song I ever wrote. Every record I made, every show I did, I've smoked dope. I've, I myself, kids don't try this at home. <laughs> I found marijuana extremely good for my creativity, never fails me. All other drugs will, if you fool with them, eventually you'll, you'll it do, well, for me anyway, none of, and alcohol too, none of those things ever helped me create anything. It was a relief to leave the heroin years behind and, and then I started to get back on track. On this record, there's me 100% being on track and caring about everything. You mentioned your band members, uh, Jeffrey Kane. He's also the uh, the label head, correct? Is that what's going on? How did that relationship develop? 
That's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we could have an argument and I say, Jeffrey, are you, are you speaking as the label head or are you speaking as the auxiliary guitarist in the band? <laughs> he and I have been friends for a long time. The first day I met him, I was playing somewhere and he turned up and he said, I've written a song and if you don't sing on it, nobody ever will. And he gave me this great, and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he gave me a CD and I went away and, I didn't play it. And then one day I didn't have anything left to play. And I went, oh, I've got a CD someone gave me. And I put it on. I went, oh, my God, uh, get me that guy on the phone. Um, I love working with Jeffrey. He brings so much to this record in his the complexity. And he creates this sort of web of things. We did two records together called Isidore. He creates like a, a web of instruments all just like a little clockwork machine, you wind it up and it's all going, all these things. Jeffrey does that. Jeffrey also takes dull pieces of music away and recontextualizes them and sends them back and they've turned into something fantastic. It's like everybody on this record did their special thing. Mm -hmm. You know, Ash Naylor was the lead guitarist and did the lead guitar thing. And Jeffrey brought his complex web of instrumentation and his unique take because he's an American. He's a lot younger than me and he's a fan of the church. So he's got a whole new filter, a whole new prism from which to view the church through. And he brings that. I haven't had much to do with Jeffrey, the record label head, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know how that's going to work out. If ever we clash over something <laughs> like that. And he sits me down and goes, you know, you didn't like Clive Davis might have done when you were escorted up to his office on the 90th floor of some <laughs> building in New York. And you go in there and he's sitting there surrounded by his henchmen. He goes, Mr. Kilby, I hear your blah, blah, blah. And you're sitting there going, please, Mr. Davis, give me a chance. Uh, it's not like that with Jeffrey, is it? Is, well, is, no. is that a true story? Because, I mean, you were on Arista. <laughs> is that... I was on that. Yes, it was like that. Okay. It, it was like, um, Steve, Clive wants to see you. And then it was. <laughs> you went up in a lift. And then when you got to a certain level on the lift, you got out of that lift and then you got in a special lift. And then you went up to this fucking huge room. <laughs> and there... There in this room is a guy sitting behind a desk miles away. And usually sometimes there were these <laughs> guys standing behind. It's like meeting the Pope. You know, you don't <laughs> just meet the Pope. You meet the Pope and there's like five priests, cardinals and bishops standing behind him. And he would sort of talk. You didn't you didn't go in there and go, ah, Clive, how are you? What the fuck? You know, what? Yeah, what are you doing, mate? You go in there and you sort of sit there and he. Mr. Kilby, I hear you. Blah, blah, blah. Oh, yes, uh, Mr. Davis. Uh, uh, yeah, please let me make another record, sir. I promise it'll have more hits on it this time. Are you sure, Mr. Kilby? Because the last one didn't sell very well. Oh, no, I'm promised, sir. I, I'm writing a hit right now. You know, it's like, it was like that. Wow. And I, I used to, believe me, I, I didn't care much for record execs. You know, I used to have them on and I was rude and stupid and all the rest of the stuff you see in Spinal Tap, you know, with Marty <laughs> Fuskin. I was like that. But Clive Davis was, even for an irreverent old fucking hippie like me, he was like, had so much gravitas, you couldn't escape it. It was like 
like being called up to the headmaster's office. You didn't fuck around with that guy. I didn't. I sat there like, and then when I was let out, you know, one of these henchmen would go, I think that went well. <laughs> you know, um, Clive seems happy and, you know, he seems satisfied. But you didn't go in there and argue with him. That's for sure. Well, I didn't. Yeah. You know, he was like, he was a big, powerful guy. In any situation, you know, in it, it, whatever job he was in, I'm sure he would, would have been like, an alpha male, top dog kind of character. You know, you you can't manufacture that kind of oomph that he has when you meet him. It sounds like the godfather <laughs> in the entertainment business. Yes, <laughs> he, exactly, exactly. He's he's got that that whole aura surrounding him. <sighs> Makes for a good story. <laughs> Nothing Absolutely. else. Absolutely. Yeah. Since we are an '80s podcast, I wanted to ask you about two other collaborations. That you yes. that you did, uh, if, if you don't mind, I, the band Hex and uh, and Jack Frost uh, were two bands that I, I really enjoyed. Those uh, we re released some of this music because I, I I think that there's there's still an audience for some of this stuff to that sh should be recognized. Did you enjoy the? Uh, did you like those two? I mean, you know, Donette there I, and and I would, it, it's available. You can get it. Yeah. You can get that stuff. It's on iTunes um, and Apple Music or whatever it's called this week. You can get it. It's not completely gone and out of print. Hex was an album I made with a girl and I fell in love with her and and she could sing. And I said, let's make an album. And I wrote all the music and then she and I worked on the lyrics. The first album was pre probably better than the second album. And it was a long time ago. I haven't listened to it forever. <sighs> After the summer Find all the wells are drunk dry Miles and miles of stubborn Branded on the I would love something to happen with that, but it seems like a long shot now, but you never know. Give Jeffrey Kane a call. Do you know Jeffrey Kane? He does, uh, he does good work. <laughs> Jeffrey Kane? Yeah, he might be able to. He might be interested in doing something like that. On his label? Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, if you know a guy like Jeffrey Kane, maybe he might, uh, might want to re-release <laughs> yeah, some of this music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, I know, I know you're saying it's a joke, but it gets all complicated, doesn't it, when it's, oh. there are, you know, like, like when there's no clearly defined relationships and i i go to him and go hey you like being in the church and he goes yeah and i go good now put these two records of mine <laughs> yeah. out from the old days and, I, and everything will be sweet the other one you've talked about jack frost yeah it, yeah just tell me about i because i i'm curious about mclennan and, and you know yeah um, just a story or two because I, I you know the go-betweens were were an amazing band well i hadn't formed any view of the go-betweens at all and I was jealous of all the good reviews they used to get. And I was like, oh, what the fuck? You know, but I didn't really, hadn't really investigated them. I was too busy 
fighting all my own battles against everything I did. I seemed like I was in conflict with everybody in the world. Every time I did anything, everybody fought with me. So I wasn't really noticing a lot of what else was going on. One day in New York, I went into a bookshop and lo and behold, some of the go-betweens were in there playing and they were ridiculously enough on this snowy afternoon, they were standing on top of the tables where they normally had books. Grant on one end, Robert on the other, and the girl playing the violin in the middle. And it just completely took me by surprise. I was in New York working, and I stood there and listened to them, and they were absolutely brilliant. And then afterwards, Robert ignored me and didn't want to talk to me, and Grant McLennan and I became instant, like, I guess you would say a bromance these <laughs> days. Instantly, we were like, he was like, Steve Kilby. And I was like, Ron McLennan. <laughs> and um, he said, we've got to make an album together. And when we got back in Australia together, I booked a little studio and we had a great time making our first album. Um, the second album, once again, like Hex, second album wasn't as good in my opinion, but the first album was really one of those wonderful serendipitous moments two songwriters come together we had a lot of fun we had a lot of laughs and it's a really it's a great album it's a great historical document in Sacramento, Brisbane, said that I just missed my flight playing cards raining hard holding on It's available if Jeffrey Kane <laughs> wants to re-release it. So be it. I'd be I'd be happy for him too. Okay, I'll make a call on your part on your behalf if you need to. Yeah, huh? yeah. <laughs> His people can do lunch with your people. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> the church is a uh, aria. Uh, do you call it the aria? Hall of you're a, yeah. the arias. Yeah. The arias. You're a yeah. hall of fame inductee, and of course, I I look at Wikipedia, which never lies, and it said you sang a verse of Old Man Emu by a, the Australian country music artist John Williamson. And I, yeah, I, yeah. I looked that up, and it's like a kid's song. What did you sing that song, and, wh- and why? And was it, does it have some significance I, for you? I'm going to give you a performance of it right now with the Australian accent. Okay. Please note that I'm an Englishman, <laughs> so I, I find amusement in speaking like this. You silly galah, I'm better by far than a white cockatoo or a budgerigar. They squeak and squawk and try and talk. Why, me and them's like cheese and chalk. <laughs> Did you like that? I loved it. I, <laughs> I think you should be doing voiceovers. That that Maybe oh, that's yeah. your next next iteration of your career. In an Aussie accent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If that song was a huge hit when I was about 15, I guess as each, see, I've got five daughters, and they came in twins, so I had two lots of twins. I would amuse them because you start grasping at straws sometimes to amuse your kids. And I found this one was very efficacious. 
to do the your stupid galah uh, to do the bird thing about a, a, a um an emu. The kids would be temporarily amused by that and stop sticking forks in the power sockets <laughs> while I did my various poems. I also taught them all kinds of things. They could rap punk punk songs, and I also taught them this one. Are you ready for this? I've got a knife for strife. I've got a gun for fun. I get money from my mum, but you can't get none because I'm a hoodlum. Ha, 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 hoodlum. I used to have all my kids <laughs> saying that, like my posse behind me. Threatening? Oh, wow. That's, <laughs> is that a, that's not I a kid song. What, what are you teaching your kids? That was an Australian punk band. I also had them doing Cherry Bomb. They loved that one. <laughs> the, Hello, the ro- Daddy. <laughs> Hello, Mom. I'm your ch And they love Susie Quattro as well. 48 crash. So all my kids were raised with the sputum and detritus of all the lyrics and stupid songs going round and round in their father's head. I'd sit them down and teach it to them. And it amused me to see them parrot all this stuff. You know, like this this ridiculous, bizarre, random lyrics that I had accumulated over a lifetime to see all my daughters <laughs> saying this stuff. It amused me. It, it, did it help get them friends when they repeat it to their friends? I don't think they did. I think it was like a family, like they didn't do it outside. It was just something. But when friends and relatives would come over, we would stand there and I'd be the leader of the gang and they'd, each set of twins in their own day would stand behind me, backing me up. So, you know, I've got a knife for strife. I've got a gun for fun. You know, they would all they'd be doing all the moves behind me. We were like a proto-rap band. For this sure. could have been one of your side projects. You had a lot of side projects. Yeah. This could have been one of them. Yeah, Steve Kilby and his kids. Who wants that? Are you a rock star to your kids or, do, or is it just you're no. just dad? You're just dad. No, I, have, no. Did you ever take I him up? Yeah. Absolutely not, nor did I want to be. I'm just their stupid dad, and that's so healthy. I can't imagine what that would be like. They must have experienced it, though. Like, I'm sure some kids went up to you, or, you know, like, fans have gone up to you when you're with your your kids, and they're like, why why do people go up to your dad? They did. That happened all the time. People come up and, and recognize me, and the kids would be like, they'd go home and say, Hey, this guy came up to dad and asked him for his autograph. <laughs> they thought it was funny. Thank you, Steve. Thank Thanks, you Steve. So Thank you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. So that was fun. Got to talk to Steve Kilby of the church. How about that? How about that? It was such a treat, but he's definitely a rock star. Can we call him prog rocker Steve Kilby of the church? We can call him whatever we want, and prog rock is an, an all-encompassing term. Well, yeah, as all white men get older they start uh, enjoying prog rock more and more so we we start appreciating these long drawn out solos we like steely dan we start to discover miles davis and uh look into the ins and outs of crazy jam jam music i don't know why that is but uh, that just it's an affliction that white men have well here's the thing as we all know now and as we discussed a little bit with steve 
we should never be embarrassed about our musical tastes, right? We're, we're not we're not mocking anybody for what they listen to any longer. You just do you, Dave. All right, thanks. I, I will continue <laughs> to do me. Because we are a proud member of the Pantheon podcast family, we embrace all music, and we like to talk about all types of music. Please subscribe to our music podcast if you so desire. And how else can they find us, Holly? And find us on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast, and you will find outtakes from this interview with Steve Kilby and many others that we've done, and some bonus concert footage from shows that we've seen recently. And on social media at WDDIM Podcast. Perfect. Uh, the website, WDDIMPodcast.com. You can see all the podcasts that we've released. You can subscribe to our newsletter. We have new episodes every Friday. And so who knows what's coming up next week? We'll, we'll soon find out. So, Only Dave knows. Oh, no, nobody knows. It's all a mystery. It just magically appears. It's podcast magic that we do over and, here. And it's magically delicious. Oh, I, I, have we made a What Difference Does it Make cereal yet? No, but I think that should be next on the agenda. Okay, I'll, I'll, get the, I'll go in the lab and start working on that. It's got to be chocolate. Okay. With that in mind, until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.